0: Hey,
1: Peter, thanks so much for joining us on the Mad Talks podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. As we uh, always like to do, I'd love to ask you the question, if you can share with me a defining moment for you, uh, what, what what would that be?
2: You know, it's interesting because I, I don't, um, it would be hard for me to pinpoint a single defining moment because I really look at my life when I think about my life, when I look back on my life. There's uh, so many defining moments, and I think that it's the culmination uh, of these collective moments that shape who I am and and who we are. So, you know, I run leadership training programs, and I, I always hope that someone emerges from the leadership training program, and and you know, this is the thing that fundamentally transformed who they are. But the reality is, it's one touch point, it's one thing that that determines who they are. So, I, I think you know, I I um went on an outdoor trip when I was in college. I was planning to really go into politics and I was in college for politics. And and I got disillusioned kind of uh, early on in my college career. And I was looking for something to do. And by mistake, I went on a bike trip. Uh, I, no, I'm sorry. By, the, by mistake, I went on a hiking trip. I was planning on going on a bike trip and the bike trip got canceled. And so I was put on this hiking trip and it was the most amazing experience of my life. And and that did shift the direction that I was going in. And I started to spend a lot of time in the outdoors and eventually led Outward Bound and Knowles expeditions, these 30-day mountaineering trips and teaching leadership. And and that was sort of defining. And I would say that my, I don't know that there's an event, but my Judaism uh, is sort of defining for me. And and actually, you know, here's one for you. I bet you didn't know I was going to give you all this, but, but uh, here's one for you, which is that my mother having been in France during the Holocaust and in hiding for four years with her family was a defining moment in my life. So I didn't experience it, but it was so present in the way that I grew up and feels like such a a, a defining kind of molding experience Ooh. that that ended up impacting me. And certainly meeting my wife, Eleanor, who is Tremendous, and of a different faith than me, and kind of managing and learning the dynamics of of our relationship uh, is defining.
0: And I can go on, but I'm going to stop here because people are going to start getting <laughs> bored. <laughs> those are those are all really great, and I think um, you know, I think you make a a, a really valid point. I think sometimes. You know, uh, a lot of people can get stuck on on trying to find these like really profound defining moments that were catalysts that you know created this sort of like chasm in their life. And I and I like that you sort of spoke to multiple things that that really had an impact on you that that have led to who you are today. And um, I'm actually really like really excited to dive into this because leadership is is something that I, I love talking about. I love reading about. Yeah, I, I used to work for Apple for quite a few years, and and that was like my my role there. And so any chance to sort of dive back into that, I just absolutely love. And and your and your work is is fantastic. So I'm I'm excited to talk about the book, but I'm also excited to talk about leadership. So let's let's just uh, start off with. Can you give us a little bit more context to what it is that you do in the world and who you usually work with?
2: So I, thank you. And I, um, I tend to work with organizations, large and small, and there's a number of different things that I do. So obviously I write, I, I've written three books and I'm working on my fourth, which is proving to be a struggle, but I think I've just gotten over the hump. I, and I'm a speaker, I, I speak to organizations and I speak at conferences Um, I run a consulting company and we do what's called Big Arrow uh, coaching or consulting. We have a Big Arrow process. And the idea is that when coaching happens in organizations, it's so individually focused that it actually not only doesn't help the organization move forward, but sometimes if the people who are being coached are moving in the wrong direction of the organization, it amplifies their performance and slows down performance in organizations. And we have a process where we work Um, in unison with the organizations and the individuals. So we do large-scale coaching in organizations. We coach a number of different people to move the organization forward. So it's about individual performance and also about moving the organization forward. We have a process that we develop for that and we do that. And then I'm personally the CEO advisor and coach of a number of uh, CEOs and working with their CEOs and the leadership teams to help them build companies that are sort of more powerful, more impactful, and that run more efficiently and productively.
1: Very cool, very cool. And you mentioned um, that you're an author. Your your previous book was called uh, 18 Minutes. Yeah, I actually have – there was a
2: book before that which was called – Point B, a short guide to leading a big change. So that was my first book. And then 18 minutes and now four seconds.
1: And now you're down to four seconds. I think my (laughs)
2: next book's going to be like half a millisecond. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's going to be just, it's going to be invisible.
0: You're trying to give Tim Ferriss a run for his money.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Tim, it takes you, Tim, it takes you four hours.
2: I do that in four seconds.
1: Yeah, get it together. Get it together, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I love this. I love this concept of, of four seconds, and, and it's it's so eye catching because you know what can you what can you really accomplish in four seconds? But uh, I think you can call you can accomplish a lot. And and through reading your book, you know, you talk about things like peace of mind, fulfilling relationships, doing good at work. These are all straightforward, very easy things to realize. But often we actually get in our own way and and sort of. Uh, uh, become destruct- destructive around these habits, but but you've you've brought to the world this idea of taking four seconds and taking a bit of a pause, and I'm wondering if you can walk us through what that looks like, and just kind of let's set the table for for this discussion around four seconds.
2: Sure. So uh, we all have habits. We have to operate with habits. I mean, we couldn't possibly be strategic and intentional about every single thing we do all day. So we brush our teeth and we don't think about it and we have conversations and we don't think about it. And sometimes that works for us. And often it's really useful. You know, in fact, I, I often talk about the difference between motivation and follow through and And, um,, most people think that they have motivation problems, but almost all of them actually have follow through problems and the motivation problem is a thinking problem, right? I need to think about something, I need to decide it's important to me, I need to feel the importance. I need to commit to it a hundred percent, and that's that you solve by thinking, right? The follow through problem. Um, you solve by not thinking, which is I decided I wanted to go to the gym. I'm motivated to go to the gym. I want to work out. But to follow through, I have to actually stop questioning whether this is the right time or whether I should really go or whether sleep is better, or whether I have enough time. I should just get up and go without thinking about it. So follow through problems we solve by not thinking. Motivation problems we solve by thinking. And the habits that we get into, oftentimes we um, are are progressing by not thinking we 're following through on on habits that are not productive for us that are not useful for us and so the 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 challenge is to be thoughtful and intentional about what you 're going to go on automatic pilot for and what you 're not. And the way to stop automatic pilot is very simple. So people sort of say you need 21 days to change a habit. And I think that's not true, actually. I mean, I think you need four seconds, right? Which is that you need the amount of time it takes to take a deep breath, to pause, to just take one breath and ask yourself, what is the outcome that I want in this situation? What should I do? And how should I move forward? And Taking that breath, slowing down your process and making an intentional choice about what you're trying to achieve can help us move from the automatic processes to the thoughtful strategic processes. Again, once we have habits that work, we don't need to do that. But when someone yells at me, I'm going to have an automatic reaction. I'm going to yell back or I'm going to run away if they have a crowbar and they're yelling at me or whatever it is. And the goal in that situation is to pause long enough to say, what's the most productive thing I could do in this situation. And in order to do that, my synapses have to go off and I have to be thinking, well, who is this? Who's yelling at me? Do they have a crowbar in their hand? Like what, you know, what's the outcome that I want? Do I just need to escape this or is it a client yelling at me? And actually the outcome I want is, you know, not to boost myself up with with some adrenaline fueled anger back, but actually pause and be thoughtful and ask a question about what's going on in order to diffuse the situation. So that's what the four seconds do.
1: I love that. And it's so easy to have a knee jerk reaction to all these different things in our lives. And, and I think we're all guilty of it. it. It's just the, you know, we, something stimulates us, we we react right away, something pops into our head, we have to, you know, take care of it right away. I, I'm actually, I'm thinking back to when I first got into, uh, I, I work in the advertising industry, when I first got into the industry, my very first boss, I remember, was he now that I look back he would take four seconds literally all the time and every time he was confronted with a challenge anytime anybody asked him a question anytime he was ready to do something he would literally take four seconds and then go at it and i at the time I thought well that's kind of strange he you know he, he's it's almost like it's taking a little slower for him to process things but the reality is is that he's just being mindful of of the decision he wants to make and I think now that I look back it's actually quite incredible what he's done. Um, Can you give me some examples of, you know, times in your life where you were perhaps knee jerk reacting to things? And, and how has that changed since uh, you've you've taken this into uh, into your into your practices?
2: You know, I'm happy to, and 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 there's so many examples, and in the book Four Seconds, I have tons of examples because I use my failed behavior constantly as an example of of how I, you know, uh, the mistakes I get into, and 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 how I get myself out of them. But I, I do want to say, um, you know, one thing that is interesting about your boss, and I've noticed this in my own podcast. And I'm going to say something that may be both controversial and, you know, hopefully not offensive. But I um, have found when I'm podcasting that I really have been enjoying talking to older academics, like older people in general. And, and that when I'm talking to young people, and I, I guess I've gotten older somehow in the process of things, which is better than the alternative. Um, but but I've gotten older, and I'm in my late 40s. In fact, next week, I turned 49. And I, I still think of myself as a 20 year old, I don't think of myself as older. But I'm noticing when I'm talking to some of these guys, and women who, who are older than me, you know, they're, they're in their 60s, maybe, they move at a different pace. And Ooh. they're thinking about what they're saying, and they're they're talking and they're pausing
1: exactly
2: yeah. and and i I find it kind of profound, actually. I mean, I think we move so fast in our culture, and we're taught to you know get so much done and to you know think fast and write fast and And there's something to the thoughtfulness that I really have enjoyed among my guests who mm-hmm. are slightly older. And I think we all have something to learn from that. Um, so just that story reminded me of what well, uh, I was reminded. Of it when
1: You know, about I sit anything. around, I sit around a boardroom table and I, I can't help but think that everyone's trying to get to the answer as quick as possible because they don't want to be seen as not knowing the answer. So, you know, the boss has a question and, and, and Everyone wants to immediately respond because the quicker they can do that, the, the more proficient they seem like they are in whatever topic it is. But the reality is that he's not looking for any answer; he's looking for the right answer. Right, right. I
2: I, I think that's absolute. I mean, that sounds absolutely right. And and there's even some evidence that you know the I just heard uh, on someone else's podcast on in HBR, and I can't remember who who was which author was talking about this but some evidence that you are seen as smarter if you respond even milliseconds faster than Mm. someone else, you're seen as sharper and smarter. Mm. You know, it's that uh, may be true, but I think it comes at a cost as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's one of those situations where far too often, you know, this sort of I think what we're really talking about here is a is a sense of mindfulness that, you know, previous generations, because they didn't have the social media and the notifications and and those types of distractions that caused them to, you know, really have to be uh not on it all the time, but that you know they could be a little bit more present to their environment and not constantly being distracted, that it allows them to have that have that sort of slower nature. So, um, I wanted to sh- shift a little bit to the leadership aspect of things because you, you know you've worked with some absolutely incredible uh, leaders, and I think that this is important in it, and it ties into the four seconds. But you know, what are some of the traits that you really see? Some of these great leaders out in the world that you work with really exuding. Like, are there some commonalities between most of them? Do, do they all have sort of different uh, traits that that sort of uh, allow them to do the work that they do, or or is there sort of a red thread between all or most great leaders?
2: I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go for yes. There's a there's a red thread, and uh, the one caveat I'm gonna give to that is I think you know i I've, I've always hated personality assessments and the reason that i've hated them is because people succeed in so many different ways and the variety of variables that interact with each other to create your particular thumbprint of success is um is is undocumentable meaning you know i you, there's quiet people there's loud people there's like and 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 it's the particular combination of parts of who you are that make the biggest difference in how you're able to show up with power and and impact. And, you know, there are people who are really soft-spoken and there are people who are really loud and and all of them could be equally successful in leadership roles. Um, So I I just kind of want to say that as a caveat to what I'm about to say. Which is um, and and we've built our leadership we have a run something called the leadership intensive, and we 've built the leadership intensive based on this idea, and the idea is that i 've never seen a leader fail for lack of knowledge i 've never seen someone fail because they didn 't know enough about leadership and when you think about what all the leadership programs teach out there they 're all basically teaching you the newest, latest, greatest stuff about how to lead but how to lead is not someone's problem. Actually leading is. So closing the gap between what you know and what you do is the greatest challenge that leaders face. And in order to close that gap, you have to be willing to do two things. One is you have to be willing to feel. So if you think about why we don't do things, right? It's not because we don't know how or what to do. It's because there's something we don't want to feel. If I don't have a hard conversation with you, the reason I'm not having that hard conversation is because there's something I don't want to feel. I don't want to feel your rejection. I don't want to feel the shame of maybe being wrong. I don't want to feel the embarrassment of, of, of how you might feel and the silence that might you know, accompany what I say. And so I don't have that hard conversation. And, and if I don't take a risk, It's because, you know, I don't want to feel failure. I don't want to feel what um, I might feel like if you see my failure, you know, but it's, it's a feeling. If we're willing to feel everything, then we can do anything. The thing that stands in the way of our taking powerful action is a willingness to feel. It's what I call emotional courage. So the greatest leaders that I know show a tremendous amount of emotional courage. They are willing to do things that will lead to feelings and they're willing to feel those feelings. And then the second piece is, and it comes along with emotional courage is a willingness to act and take risks. So the greatest leaders I know are really good at distilling ideas down to the essential component, deciding on an action to take, recognizing that a risk comes along with it and ta- and, and they're faster to action in that. And it's funny because we're talking about four seconds, the amount of time you need to replace a counterproductive behavior with one that works. And we're talking about pausing just a little bit. But that pause gives us an ability to act powerfully. When I was leading Knowles trips, National Outdoor Leadership School, they were um, 30-day expeditions. And, and once I had someone who broke their leg on a trip, and we were 20 miles from anywhere, and we needed to um, ultimately helicopter helicopter evac the person. But I remember something that Paul Petzl said, and he didn't say it to me, but Paul Petzl was the guy who started Knowles. And he said... When there's an emergency situation, what's the first thing that you do? And, you know, everyone's answering and they're saying, you know, we, you know, the first thing you do is you, you know, clear the area or you, you, you know, call for help or you do. And he said, no, I mean, yeah, the first thing you do is make sure no one else is going to get injured. There's no one else in, in immediate danger. But right after that, go smoke a cigarette Now, you know, this is like I wouldn't suggest that anybody should go smoke a cigarette. And, you know, this was in the 1970s when that's kind of what even if you were an expedition leader in the wilderness, I guess you did. But but it's this idea of saying take a minute to separate yourself from the situation and be thoughtful about what are the consequences and what's going on and get the birds eye view and get away from the action and then when you have been thoughtful and strategic jump in and start to act and i think the best leaders do that really well they are able to be thoughtful about things and then when they act they act with ambition and ferocity you know the the what when we do coaching work the way I define coaching is a reliable process that helps people get massive traction on their most important work. And that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in helping leaders get massive traction on their most important work. And I think what makes great leaders great is that they are able to feel what it is that they need to feel in order to get massive traction
1: on their most important work. And they act aggressively in that direction. Wow. I think what you just said there, I mean, this is a free podcast for these guys out there, and they just got a whole whack of amazing information. (laughs) Um, You know, great leaders uh, have the willingness to feel feelings and the willingness to act powerfully and and take massive action. uh, That's absolutely incredible. You know, one of the things that you, you talk about in the book is that, it, something I guess is is also a little bit controversial is is taking responsibility for someone else's failure can can help your team. Can you walk us through that? What is you know how is that going to uh, how is that going to help a situation?
2: You know it's so funny because I I sat around a table. What what gave me this idea or helped crystallize it for me is I was sitting around a table of a CEO and the leadership team. And they had a bad quarter and people were trying to figure out what went wrong and, and, you know, kind of uh, what do we do to improve it for next quarter. And one by one, everybody in the room was pointing out um, how someone else had made a mistake, right? Because they were all trying to avoid the blame because they didn't want to get in trouble for it on a basic level, right? What do I not want to feel? Like, I don't want to feel the shame of having performed poorly. I don't want to feel the uh, fear that my job might be in jeopardy. I don't want to feel the um, judgment of my peers, right? So instead of saying, here's what I did wrong, everybody was saying, look, I think marketing, you know, the operations guy says, look, I think marketing could have come up with a much stronger message for this quarter. And marketing turns around to sales and goes, look, we had a really, really clear message, But, you know, sales could have executed on our message more effectively. And sales turns around to, you know, product development, design, R&D, and says, look, if we actually had a product that we could sell, then it would make sales a lot easier and we could follow through on the marketing message. And then you know r and d says, well, if manufacturing was able to you know create the product as we designed it, then you know with with less errors then you know and et cetera and et cetera et cetera and i'm sitting there and i'm i'm looking at everybody and and like amazed at at human nature and but but it's but it makes sense like it's not it's, it's very natural, right, that people try to avoid blame. It's the same thing that when I look at Daniel uh, the other day, who's my nine-year-old, and he had chocolate all over his mouth, all over his mouth. And I look at him and, and I said, Daniel, and even without my saying, you know, why are you eating chocolate, et cetera, he just looks at me with chocolate all over his mouth. And I didn't say anything yet. I just called his name. And he looked at me and he goes, I didn't eat any chocolate. <laughs> and, and I was like, I didn't say you did, but now that you mention it, go look in a mirror. And so I, and, and in fact, that advice to Daniel, uh, I, I didn't plan this, but that advice to Daniel is really my advice to people, which is look in a mirror. And, and the best thing you can do and the most powerful move you can make, which eventually the sales guy made, is to say, which the sales guy said, guys, there are three things I did last quarter that contributed to our challenge. And I want to say what they are, and I want to say what I'm going to do next quarter to change it. And he said that, and there was silence in the room. And instead of his job being in danger, everyone pointing the fingers or judging him, one by one, people started to take responsibility for what they could take responsibility for. And what, what they realized when they saw his move is the most powerful move that you can make in a situation like that is to own everything because people see you as accountable. People see you as responsible. People see you as someone that they want on the team. It's the exact opposite of what we fear. That if you take blame for things, then people look at you and they go, I want this guy on my team. But if you're pointing fingers at everybody around you, people are going to say, I don't want this guy on my team. Right. Right. Mm. And so it's counterintuitive in the moment. It's why we need the four seconds. It's why we need the breath. Because to avoid blame is the natural human move. But to take the blame is the power leadership move. And and when we do that, we're creating a much more dynamic, accountability and relationships with the people around us than we would if we try to avoid that blame. And we're actually ensuring the security of our role and the success of the business in a way that blaming other people, even if they deserve the blame, puts
0: those things at risk. Yeah, I think that, you know, you really like hit the nail on the head there. Just in terms of any great and successful leaders that I've ever worked with or ever seen or or studied, they are most most of the time, 95% of the time, there are some exceptions, but the majority of them are the ones who are, strong enough and brave enough to take responsibility, even when sometimes that responsibility wasn't directly theirs, you know, maybe it was their team and, and whatever. And it would be easy for them to to pass the buck. But the ones that the ones that just say, you know what, I'm responsible for this. And as a leader of the team, like I, I I'm directly responsible for that. And it creates such a shift from a, like a behavioral standpoint that people get on board with it. And it creates like this domino effect. And so, um, yeah, I, I love that. I love that. Cause you get to be the first domino and, and kind of, you know, allow everybody to, to step into that space. So, um, just moving forward a little bit here, tell us a little bit about strategic disengagement. What is what does that mean? And, and can you unpack that for us?
2: you know we and i see this all of the time in organizations which is that really successful people see themselves as powerful actors in the world and making things happen and it's true right we are powerful actors in the world and we make things happen and there's a lot of research that says you know optimists uh, are people who see the world is under their control and they make things happen and and that's really useful especially when you're an individual contributor in an organization because you do make things happen. But uh and this is something that I'm facing in my own life right now, there's this huge downside to thinking that you can control everything and to strategically engaging with every issue and to fill in every hole and every gap. And and I and there's there's two reasons for that. One reason is Um, Things do sometimes take care of themselves. You know, when I when I was um, uh, on vacation once and I really did not check email or voicemail um, at all, uh, I came back to hundreds and hundreds of messages and, you know, a ton of voicemails because I really just, you know, for a week checked nothing. And what I found is so many problems that people were raising to me in the early emails and early voicemails, they called later or emailed later to tell me how they had resolved it in the later ones. And I realized, you know, I'm inhibiting people's capacity to act powerfully because I'm making all the decisions and they don't need me. And there's something incredibly jarring about that. There's something disappointing about that. And I know everybody who doesn't delegate says, I would love it if people could just do stuff and I wouldn't have to delegate and I, and I could delegate and people could just do stuff. I would love that. But it's not true. And it's not true because so many of us are dependent on our busyness in order to feel accomplished. And to feel like we're moving forward and we're safe and, you know, the same way there's a lot of things that we don't do because we don't want to feel something, right? I don't have that hard conversation because I don't want to feel something. Um, there's a lot of things that we do because we want to feel something that's not necessarily In our best interests, And I know for me in my life right now, um, one of those things is how busy I am. And there's something about saying I'm really busy. And there's something about being really busy. That's comforting, that on the one hand, it's killing me. And on the other hand, it's very comforting, because I feel very useful, and I feel needed, and I feel secure. And there's an element of strategic disengagement that I have to have in order to really be present to other elements of my life and in order to empower people around me to do the things that they really need to do. And that's very, very hard for some of us, but it's really, really powerful. And I'll just give you the third way in which um, strategic disengagement is really useful. And that is, and I'll use my, my tendonitis elbow as an example of this. Um, I, I have tendonitis in my elbow and I had for a really long time. But what I realized the other day is it actually switched elbows. So my left elbow is completely fine now. My right elbow has tendonitis in it. It used to be the opposite. I you sure and you weren't looking, just looking in the mirror? I might, have been. <laughs> I might have been. I might have been. And and I for my left elbow, I did all sorts of treatments. I had this like blood, you know the the this thing that sports doctors do where they took my blood out and they spun it and they put it back in to increase the healing platelets and and I did you know shots of cortisone and exercises and acupuncture and nothing helped and then my brother who's a physician said to me you know here's the thing when medicine has multiple solutions for a problem it's because medicine doesn't actually know how to solve that problem so people are throwing all sorts of things at you and none of them are working my advice to you is just stop. Just stop trying to fix your elbow. Don't do anything that prominently hurts. And then see if over the next month and a half or two months, it gets better. And I did it and it got better. And, and like, there's times when just stop messing with it. Stop irritating it. Stop annoying it. And, you know, I could I could say this about my elbow. I could say it about people too. Like, just stop getting in people's way. And, and that opens up the possibility for healing and for their, you know, their own powerful action. The, wow. These, Love
0: like that. every, everything you just said just resonated and hit home pretty, pretty deep. It's it's interesting because with this strategic disengagement, like it's definitely something that oftentimes um, in, in the past I've struggled with. And it's kind of funny because when I worked in a corporate environment, like when I worked with Apple and I had, you know, people that I was working for and that I had to report to, and then people, you know, hundreds of people that reported to me, it was often much easier for me to relinquish the reins and sort of delegate and and let go and, and allow people to really step into their own space. But what I noticed was that when I shifted to being an entrepreneur and to running my own business, then I didn't want to let go of any of the reins. And it was this weird contrast. Is that something that you've noticed, where people that have predominantly worked in a in a in an environment where they report to people and then start their own business struggle to like let go of the reins, or or is that just uh, is that just my sort of weirdness?
2: No, it's definitely not just your weirdness. And and it's it's actually so interesting and so true. And I I remember when I first started my company. This is now going back almost twenty years and i said you know people were saying you know how do you how do you feel and i said you know i, I on the one hand i feel great because i am finally uh responsible like i'm finally like i could do what i've always wanted to do i've been pushing people to do stuff now i'm finally like the bottom line i can make it happen and they said you know well what's the you know what's the downside and the downside is I'm finally accountable. <laughs> like, like if this thing fails, then, you know, it's me. It's on me. And and by the way, when I start a business, I'm starting it because I'm so deeply passionate about what I'm doing. I care so deeply about it. So it's not like when I was working at Accenture or when I was working at Hay Group, I didn't care. But I didn't care as much, right? And and I, I'm starting something because this 20 years ago, and this is still true for me, because I really... Care so deeply, and it's my name on the company it's my you know self on the line and i I want to do a I have a very very high standard and I want to do amazing work and so there's a level of stress that goes along with that, and it's you know some people could think well maybe that's the stress of you know the the, uh, you know, all the money and, and you know, like you're, if, if the business does well, you're fine. If the business doesn't do well, you know, you're not going to make any money. It's not like you have a salary, but I don't think it's that. I think it's more in the heart that we care so deeply about what it is that we do. And I think when you start your own company, all the more so you care so deeply about what it is that you're doing and the impact that it has in the world that, you know, you're so tied to the mission in a way that, is probably stronger than you were tied to the mission. I mean, you tell me if this is true for you, but probably, you know, more tied to your mission of what you're trying to achieve now and what it means to you to succeed than when you were an employee and and working in a different environment. And I think that just ups the ante.
0: Yeah, 100%. percent i I agree hundred percent. Like I was very engaged with, with the company I was working with and I, and I loved it and I love the people, but there, there is something very different about the energy now. And, and, you know, being able to lean into that unknown a little bit and, and, and kind of, um, realize that the people that, you know, like Roger and some of the other people on the team, um, you know, they're there. And the, the, the funny thing, the catch 22 is that, you know, I wanted to work with them because of how exceptional and how extraordinary they are. And that's why, you know, we, we brought them in. But then at the same time, there's sort of like the the struggle of, well, if I don't do this, is it going to get done? Right. And so, but but at the same time, to your point, um, it really can hinder and hold things back. And so the more that I've kind of let go and, and allowed people to step into their area of genius or, or area of greatness, that's when things have like really started to flow. So I really appreciate that, uh, that insight from you because it's, I think it's powerful and I I really feel like it probably resonated with a lot of people, uh, listening to this episode. So,
1: Hey, Peter, this has been an amazing conversation and I feel like we could probably talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, we got to start wrapping up, wrapping up though, but before we go, we always like to ask our guests a series of rapid fire questions and I'm wondering if you'd be up for that.
0: Sure. Perfect. Connor, why don't you kick us off? Awesome, awesome. So they're, they're just brief, but we'll start off with the first one, which is always a fun one and always has some interesting answers. Uh, what is your favorite part about being a man?
2: Um, uh, it's a hard one. I mean, there's so many things. I, I actually feel like you said rapid fire, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 um, I'll just say what comes to me, which is athleticism, my athleticism. But I th- that that could nice. be any person. But that's what I. That's nice. what came to
1: me. And what is the biggest challenge about being a man?
2: The uh, culture of like being a full human being in a culture that asks men to be uh, to, to have a more limited range of both emotion and and uh, expression.
0: love it. That's a great answer. Um, in your opinion, who is the most influential person of all time? My mother. Awesome. What is the most underrated trait for modern day success? I'm going to go with feeling. Mm. Mm. What is something that everyone should experience at least once in their lifetime?
2: Aside from reading my book? (laughs) Um,
1: uh, I think I'm just going to go with a hot bath. Perfect. Mm. Love it. Um, So let's imagine you're stuck on a desert island, but you get to bring one book with you. What is that one book? And it can't be one of yours. No, I wasn't going to say one of mine. <laughs> and, and a Kindle. I
2: can't say Kindle. Well, you can, but you're only going to be able to read it for so long. Uh, no, but if I have my Kindle with like 2,500 books, that, that's, <laughs> uh, you know, that would be my... Uh, um, but you're right. I would only be able to read it for... You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, the one book... I, for some reason, the book that comes to me right now is um, Rumi, like a book of Rumi poems. Hmm.
1: Second guest in a row that said Rumi.
0: Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, and then, and then finally, uh, the last question is: If you were to leave a legacy in the world, what would it be?
2: Um, a humanness in in all settings. So you know, a, a work environment that really allows for fully human beings uh, to be able to live and express themselves.
1: Awesome. Mm. Awesome. Peter, if if, uh, people want to learn more about you, um, uh, reach out, say hi, uh, follow you, what's the best way they they can do that? The best way is to go to PeterBregman.com. P-E-T-E-R-B-R-E-G-M-A-N.com. Awesome. Awesome. And the book is available wherever awesome books are sold. Also, if you go to peterbregman.com, you can do a, a quiz where um, you learn all about uh, some of your habits that are counterproductive, which falls in perfectly with uh, the four second book. So check out the site, go check out Peter's book, uh, check out all of Peter's books and uh, can't wait for the new book to come out. Do you want to do a little, little bit of a tease on what the topic might be?
2: Yeah, the the topic is really on emotional cards. Some of what I spoke about uh, today, and it's about how to, you know, what are the three connections that make us successful as leaders and as human beings, and then, and which is connecting to yourself, connecting to others and connecting to uh, something bigger. And, and then it's, it's how you follow
1: through to that those connections, which require a lot of vulnerability, which has to do with emotional courage. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, guys, keep an eye out for that book. I'm sure Peter will be talking about it on peterbregman.com. If you guys want to learn more about Mantox, you can, of course, go to mantalks.com where we have all sorts of uh, uh, awesome blog uh, blog posts. We have uh, subscriptions to our newsletter and all the events, uh, information that you need, which are Coming Fast and Furious. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to the Man Talks podcast. Catch Catch us next week for another interview as we build better men through conversation, connection, and community together.